You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 280, Guilford Courthouse. Now, last time we followed British General Charles Cornwallis as his army chased the Americans under General Nathaniel Greene across North Carolina. And Greene stayed ahead of the British and managed to get his army across the Dan River into Virginia before the British gave up the chase on February 14, 1781. The British moved to Hillsborough. Although Cornwallis did not get the battle he wanted, he did manage to push the Americans out of North Carolina. That was something he had been trying to do for nearly a year. Greene considered it a success that he had managed to keep his Continental Army intact. He had made every effort to avoid a decisive battle since he didn't think he could win. But he also knew that he could not sit in Virginia and allow the British to claim North Carolina. Now, the relatively few North Carolina militia who had joined Greene either abandoned him before he entered Virginia or left soon after their arrival. A few days after he crossed the Dan, Greene reported that he had only about 80 North Carolina militia in his entire army. Greene had also made plans with South Carolina General Andrew Pickens to remain in North Carolina and continue recruiting efforts there. A few days after Greene arrived in Virginia, Pickens reported that he had a force of about 700 still in North Carolina to harass the enemy. However, many of the men with Pickens were from South Carolina and Georgia. They wanted to go fight in their home states, not in North Carolina. So many of the men abandoned Pickens and went home. Pickens told Green that they were among the worst men he had ever commanded. So the chances of General Pickens maintaining an effective fighting force on his own, even just for harassment purposes, seemed pretty slim. That's right, I called it Slim Pickens. About this same time, Green also got word that the British were actively recruiting Loyalist militia in North Carolina. In response, Green deployed Light Horse Harry Lee to break up these recruiting efforts. Lee crossed over the Dan River back into North Carolina with his Legion of Dragoons, as well as two companies of Continental Infantry from the Maryland line. Lee's first goal was to link up with Pickens and his militia. He found them, but as his legion approached, the militia mistook Lee's men's green uniforms for the green uniforms of Bannister Tarleton's legion, and they opened fire. Fortunately, the men realized they were on the same side before anyone was killed. Pickens, as I said, had already lost much of his militia by the time he met up with Lee, so the combined force was only about 600 men. Now, the Americans knew that Tarleton was in the area. Cornwallis gave him 200 dragoons on horseback, about 150 infantry regulars, and 100 Hessian Jaegers to march west and protect the groups of Tory recruits 
that were being raised for military duty and marched to the main British camp. On the afternoon of February 25th, while they were marching, the Americans came across a regiment of Loyalist recruits led by Loyalist militia colonel John Pyle. Once again, Lee's green uniforms led to the mistake that they were part of Tarleton's legion. So Pyle's Loyalists greeted the Americans as friends and allowed them to move up the path they were on. Many years later, Lee wrote that he planned to ride up to Colonel Pyle and demand his surrender. He then planned to disperse the militia and allow them to return home on the promise that they would not try to join the British again. Whether or not this was really Lee's intent, it is not what happened. Just about the time that Lee reached Pyle, the Loyalists realized that they were, in fact, intermingled with the enemy. It's not clear exactly what happened, but the stories indicate that at least one of the American militia took some hostile act against the Loyalists. Whatever happened, the Americans opened fire and attacked the startled Loyalists with sabers and bayonets. Within minutes, about a fourth of the militia were dead and most of the rest wounded. And most of those wounded were so badly wounded that they died over the next few days. Out of a total of 400 Loyalists, about 250 died and another 93 survived with their wounds. Among these was Colonel Pyle, who lost several fingers on his left hand. The Loyalists had no time to react to this attack. Only one American was killed. There were also reports that after the fighting ended, some of the Loyalists taken prisoner were cut down by men who shouted, Remember Buford, which of course references an incident that I discussed back in episode 251, where Tarleton's Legion cut down and murdered surrendering Americans. This incident, unsurprisingly, became known as Pyle's Massacre. It has been compared to Buford's Massacre, which contributed to Tarleton's reputation as a butcher. Green, however, justified the Pyle's Massacre, saying that it was necessary to discourage Loyalist recruitment in North Carolina. Tarleton's Legion was not very far from the site of the massacre when it happened. Tarleton later reported that he got word of it and located the enemy camp that night. He prepared his men to march at midnight to attack the American camp. As he prepared, though, he received orders from General Cornwallis to return to Hillsborough immediately. So Tarleton called off the attack and marched his legion back to Hillsborough. Lee and Pickens attempted to chase down Tarleton's legion, but the fast-moving Tarleton managed to stay ahead of them and return to the main camp at Hillsborough. The reason Cornwallis recalled Tarleton so suddenly was his concern about Greene's movements with the main Continental Army. On February 22nd, three days before the Pyle Massacre, Nathaniel Greene recrossed the Dan River to bring the main army back into North Carolina. Greene had been hoping for the arrival of Colonel William Campbell with a promise of about a thousand Virginia militia. Campbell, you may recall, was one of the leaders at King's Mountain. As Green began to move, Campbell was still a no-show. Green, still concerned about British efforts to rally Loyalist militia in North Carolina, felt that he had to bring his army back into the state in order to show that control was still contested. He moved down near the town of Salem, about 40 or 50 miles west of the British base of operations at Hillsborough. Now, within days of Greene's return to North Carolina, Cornwallis moved his army out of Hillsborough 
and toward Green's reported location. Part of the reason for leaving Hillsboro was the hope of catching Green and forcing a battle, but the other reason was that the British were starving in Hillsborough. They could not get any food from the locals, and the officers and men were on starvation rations. Cornwallis retained the goodwill of his men by sharing their sufferings. He personally took no more than the standard food ration that was being given to his men, and he slept out under the stars when his men were also forced to do so, having burned their tents and wagons weeks earlier. Cornwallis also still hoped to supplement his forces with local militia. The Pile Massacre put a damper on that, but things got worse when a group of local militia recruits approached the British camp on March 4th. Soldiers from Tarleton's Legion thought they were rebels and rushed them, killing many of the recruits with their sabers. The surviving recruits escaped into the woods before the British realized their mistake, and those who did escape returned home. The night following this incident, another group of Loyalists were driving a small herd of cattle to the British camp for food. An American patrol discovered them and killed 23 men who were driving the herd. These sorts of incidents greatly discouraged any would-be Loyalist volunteers from attempting to join or assist the British. For the next few weeks, the two armies played a game of cat and mouse. They both moved locations every day and usually remained within about 20 miles of each other. Cornwallis wanted a fight. Green did not. Because the Patriot militia seemed to come and go at will, Green never really had a good idea of how many men were in his army at any one time. Those that remained also created their own problems. For example, Colonel Otha Williams sent an officer to command a new group of Virginia riflemen. The men refused to serve under that officer and insisted on electing their own. Green was also still hoping that Campbell would arrive soon with those 1,000 Virginia militia when he received word from Campbell informing the commander that he had managed to raise an army of only 60 men. In the pre-dawn hours of March 6th, Colonel Williams led a detachment to attack a small British encampment near a mill. As Williams' men advanced on the mill, he received word that a much larger division of regulars under Colonel James Webster, as well as Colonel Tarleton and his legion, were on the hunt for him and were only about two miles away. This larger British force was between 1,000 and 1,200 men. Williams detached a few patrols to slow down the enemy, but turned around his main force and retreated back to Weitzel's Mill, which was about 10 miles away. This was the location of a ford over Reedy Fork Creek, which led back to the main army under General Green. With Williams, there were a few dozen South Carolina militia under Andrew Pickens, and the newly arrived Colonel Campbell with his 60 Virginia militia. Also with him were Light Horse Harry Lee's Legion and William Washington's Dragoons. So in total, the Continental Group totaled about six or 700 men, although most of them were militia. The Americans got to the ford just ahead of their pursuers. Williams deployed the militia under Pickens and Campbell to lay down covering fire as the rest of the men crossed the ford. Washington and Lee provided support on the flanks. Once across, the men on the far bank provided covering fire for the rest of the army to cross. Crossing the ford under fire was panicked and crowded. Some militia were reported to have drowned during the crossing, but the bulk of the army got across the river and was able to escape full disaster. 
Reports of the battle aren't consistent, but they show between 30 and 50 casualties on each side. Williams's division was able to return to the main army, and the British did not pursue any further. By the second week of March, Greene's forces finally began to grow. After he returned to North Carolina, the militia finally began to turn out in significant numbers. Militia generals John Butler and Thomas Easton rode into camp with about a thousand militia. General von Steuben, who was still up in Virginia, sent Greene 400 new Continentals from Maryland. By contrast, Cornwallis had only managed to attract a few hundred Loyalist militia. These didn't even replace the regulars that he had lost over the last couple of months due to death, disease, and desertion. His core soldiers were now under 2,000 men. Even so, Cornwallis was still looking for a decisive battle. He was confident that his regulars could defeat even a larger army of mostly militia. With his new reinforcements, Green was also ready for battle. He had no idea how long his militia would remain with him, so he had to fight while his numbers were high. Green also wanted to pick a favorable ground for the battle, and since Cornwallis was willing to pursue him anywhere, Green could pick the time and place for the showdown. Green chose the area around Guilford Courthouse. He had analyzed the area during his march to the Dan River weeks earlier, and he thought the location was as good as any that he had seen. On March 13th, the Americans marched to Guilford Courthouse and began to deploy for battle. Cornwallis received reports of Green's position the following day and made plans to march into battle as well. On the evening of the 14th, Green asked Lee to reconnoiter. About four miles west of Guilford Courthouse, Lee's dragoons ran into the enemy. Lee sent a dispatch rider to inform Green and deployed his men to get more information about the size and movement of the enemy. Bannister Tarleton was at the head of the British column and rode into an ambush set by Lee. There was a firefight of about 30 minutes, and both sides took casualties. Tarleton received a bullet wound in his right hand, but continued to fight. Eventually, Lee's forces withdrew to inform Green of the enemy's approach. At this point, Green had about 4,400 men under arms. About 40% of his force, about 1,800 men, were Continentals. Green deployed his men using much of the same strategy that General Morgan had used at Calpins. Green put his 1,000 North Carolina militia, commanded by Butler and Easton, in the front of his line, with the expectation that they would get off a couple of shots, then withdraw. About 300 yards behind the first line, Green deployed a second line of 1,200 Virginia militia under the command of General Robert Lawson, and General Edward Stevens. Still embarrassed by the failure of the Virginia militia at Camden, who fled under his command, Stevens deployed 20 riflemen behind his line and informed his men that the riflemen had orders to shoot any soldier who turned and ran. Green then put the 1,200 Continentals in a third line toward the rear. General Isaac Yugi and Colonel Otho Williams and others led these men he also deployed riflemen and cavalry to protect the flanks of all three lines, trying to drive the enemy into a frontal assault. He also had additional artillery support in the center of the Continental Line. Now, although Green was using the strategy of putting his weakest soldiers in front and asking for only a few shots, this was a very different battlefield from the one at Calpins, 
where Morgan had won with this tactic. The field at Gilford Courthouse was much larger, meaning the lines could not support one another. Given the hills and trees, they could not even see each other. Green also did not keep a reserve behind his third line that he could throw into any problems that arose. At around 1.30 in the afternoon, the 1st British Infantry arrived on the field, fifes and drums and bagpipes announcing their arrival. Cornwallis feared that he might be facing as many as 10,000 Americans against his 2,400. But he was not going to walk away from this fight. Both sides opened up with artillery, but at a distance that had little impact on either side. Although the British line was almost entirely regulars and Hessians, the men were not in good shape. They'd been on short rations for over two months, and had just marched 12 miles to reach the battlefield without stopping for breakfast. The British infantry marched to within about 400 yards of the front line of the militia, formed into line, and the British advanced toward the enemy. Now, according to Green, the militia got off only a shot or two before retreating, and many men didn't fire at all. Other officers contradicted this, and later said that the militia did fairly well before retreating, and several British regiments reported taking pretty high casualties in this exchange of fire. As they were trained to do, the British stepped over their dead and dying comrades, closed ranks, and continued to march within 40 yards of the militia. At that point, the British charged bayonets and rushed the enemy, where the remaining militia fled. Green had hoped that the militia would run back to the next line and provide support there. But the militiamen had had enough. They fled the battlefield and were done for the day. Many of them even dropped their weapons in order to run faster as they disappeared into the woods. Now, the British could not pursue the fleeing militia, because Continental infantry and riflemen were firing into the field from both flanks. The British had to contend with those flanking companies before advancing. The fighting on the flanks moved into the woods, where British lines broke up and fighting devolved into individual attacks, mostly using swords and bayonets. Cornwallis himself was at the front of the fighting. He had ordered Tarleton to remain in reserve in case a regiment got overrun. The Americans at one point shot Cornwallis's horse, and he was forced to mount another horse to continue his efforts. The British advanced through the woods, along the American flanks, and attacked the Virginia militia in the second line of Americans from the side. The militia there appear to have fought well. General Stevens took a shot in the thigh, but praised the actions of his soldiers before they finally gave way. After fighting through two heavily contested lines of Americans, the British finally reached the crest of the hill. There they saw more than a thousand Continentals, supported by artillery, in the line several hundred yards away. Without waiting for the rest of the army, General Webster led two regiments of British regulars against the Continental line. The disciplined Continentals waited until they were within about a hundred yards, then released a devastating volley. Webster was badly wounded, but continued to rally his regulars. British General O'Hara was also wounded and turned over his command of regulars to John Stewart, who also charged the Continental Line. Stewart charged at the 2nd Maryland, which was a new regiment and relatively untested in battle. The men broke and ran. The 1st Regiment, however, stayed and fought some of the most brutal combat of the day. 
Seeing the danger, Colonel Washington charged his cavalry into the lines to support the 1st Maryland. The fight descended into fighting with bayonet and swords, men using their muskets as clubs to beat the enemy to death. Maryland Captain John Smith killed Stuart with a saber blow to the head. Neither side was backing down, and the men were intermingled in the field. Cornwallis, however, feared that the British would be driven back. To prevent this, he ordered his artillery to fire into the melee, killing both the enemy and his own regulars. The cannon fire finally forced both sides to scatter and withdraw. Cornwallis then advanced more of his regulars into the gap. Green, however, had had enough. He ordered his men to withdraw from the field. The retreat, however, was orderly and well covered, and the British did not pursue them. In all, the Americans lost 79 killed and 184 wounded. Also, 90% of the militia that had fled the field went home and did not return. The British lost 93 killed and 413 wounded, many of whom died within days. At the end of the day, the British held the field, which gives them the victory. But Cornwallis had lost men that he could not replace. His effective fighting force was down to about 1,400 men, still starving and many shoeless. British General O'Hara wrote, quote, I wish it had produced one substantial benefit to Great Britain. On the contrary, we feel at the moment the sad and fatal effects on our loss that day. And what remains of our army are so completely worn out by the excessive fatigues of the campaign. Uh, even Cornwallis conceded that, quote, We had not a regiment or corps that did not at some time give way. The Americans fought like demons. Cornwallis took his battered army to the east coast town of Wilmington. He had to abandon many of his wounded along the way. Cornwallis's army was no longer an effective fighting force, and it was going to need time to recover. Green took advantage of this and advanced his army into the largely unguarded South Carolina. So Green had lost the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, but ended up winning the campaign as a result. Now next week, we're going to head back up to Philadelphia as the Continental Congress finally sees ratification of the Articles of Confederation. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, John Salentano, and Michael Mulhern. And to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, TJ Walker, Joe Kelsey, and Chase Prevett. Thanks also to U.S. Brass Shop, Frank Falls, and Scott Ranierson for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I really appreciate everyone who has stepped up to support this podcast. I've been working on a number of projects for the podcast recently, and one of them has been my decision to join a history podcast network called Into History. Now, don't worry, there's nothing going to change with my podcast. The only difference is that if you choose to subscribe to Into History, you can get access to my podcast ad-free, just as you can through Patreon. You can also get access to a bunch of other history podcasts, and they're working on some plans for some special exclusive content. So if that sounds interesting, go to IntoHistory.com for a free trial. This week we covered Guilford Courthouse. I've heard some historians make the argument that this battle was one of the most pivotal of the war, and that it was really the beginning of the end for the British in the war. Well, certainly the battle really took General Cornwallis's army out of the war. Cornwallis would eventually move up to Virginia to combine with several other armies there, but we'll leave that story to future episodes. Guilford Courthouse also opened the door for the Continentals to reclaim Georgia and the Carolinas, something that really seemed like a fantasy a year or two earlier, and we'll cover the specifics of reclaiming that territory also in future episodes. Now, in my view, Guilford Courthouse was not pivotal by itself, but it was part of a series of battles, including King's Mountain and Cowpens, and probably hundreds of smaller skirmishes that weakened the British over time. The British did not have more regulars that they could send to the South, and the ability to block Loyalists from joining in large numbers doomed the British effort in the South. Battles like Guilford Courthouse definitely contributed to this overall strategy. Uh, Military historians also like to cite this battle as the classic case of a Pyrrhic victory. That is, a battle which was technically a victory for the British, since they held the field at the end of the day, but it was a strategic loss since they decimated their southern army and opened up the south to the enemy. When the anti-war leader in Parliament, Charles Fox, heard about Guilford Courthouse, he quipped, Another such victory would ruin the British Army. I've already recommended several other books that cover this battle pretty well, including The Road to Guilford Courthouse by John Buchanan. Many of those books cover the whole Southern campaign, or at least large chunks of it. My recommendation this week does some of that, but it spends a bit more time focused on the battle itself. It's called The Battle of Guilford Courthouse, A Most Desperate Engagement by John Moss. It's not a very long book, just a bit over 200 pages, but it dives into the military history of the campaign and explains why it is so important. The author, Moss, is a military historian who has written a number of other books and articles particularly focused on the Southern Campaign of the Revolution. So for more on this topic, check out The Battle of Guilford Courthouse, A Most Desperate Engagement by John Moss. My online recommendation is a Department of Interior report called The Battle of Guilford Courthouse 
by Charles Hatch. Uh, this report was written over 50 years ago as part of the government's preparations for the Bicentennial. If you're really interested in the details of the battle itself, uh, this may be your best option, better than even many of the books that are out there. Its main content is over 100 pages, which is entirely focused on the battle itself. It also has extensive appendices, which include details on the units involved, the individuals involved, and specific casualties. The author, Hatch, has written quite a few books involving Southern U.S. history, and you can actually buy his book about Guilford Courthouse as a book, but the book you'll buy is identical to the free report that you can download from archive.org. Because it was written for the Department of Interior, there is no copyright on it. You can find the document on archive.org or just use the direct link I've included on my blog and website. My question this week asks, did the Americans or the British win more battles during the American Revolutionary War? Well, I suppose part of the answer depends on what you call a battle and what you define as a victory. There were thousands of smaller skirmishes, and if 10 or 12 guys encounter each other in the woods and shoot at each other and then ride off, and a couple die on each side. Is that a battle? And if so, who won? So, I don't know. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that we'll look at the top 25 deadliest encounters and say that they constitute battles. Next, you have to decide what constitutes a victory. In many battles, both sides claim victory. The typical customary definition of a victory is when you force the enemy to abandon the field and hold the real estate where you had been fighting. Using that definition of the 25 largest battles, I'd say the Americans could claim victory in only four of them. So overall, the British overwhelmingly won most of the battles. But again, that's just judging by whether you held the field at the end of the day and nothing else. The British, for example, won Bunker Hill, but they lost over a thousand men in doing so a huge percentage of their entire army in America. The Americans won Monmouth, but only because the British had no desire to hold the field. They were attacked while retreating to New York from Philadelphia, and the British only wanted to get to New York City with their army intact, which they did. As in today's episode, the Americans regularly ceded the field to the British after inflicting a terrible blow on the army. Since the British only had a limited number of soldiers and could not replenish them easily, the series of British tactical victories in holding a field diminished their long-term fighting capacity, causing them to win more large battles but still lose the war. This is a problem we see for large powers in many wars. They look at battle victories and casualty rates as an indicator of success, while at the same time losing their overall strategic grip. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.